So welcome back. This evening I would like to continue this exploration of the ten parami, these ten beautiful qualities of heart and mind that are such powerful supports for this path to freedom. And again, I just want to acknowledge we've been moving through them pretty quickly. But as we've been discovering, each of them is supported by all the others and in fact depends on the others for it to be a true parami and not just a nice quality of character. So even though we might be focusing on one particular one each week, they tend to bring many of the others with them. So when I spoke here last time, a month or so ago, I talked about wisdom and how it's wisdom that makes sure all of the other parami are guided in the right direction. And I think this is particularly important when we come to the next parami, which is the parami of energy. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on tonight. But we need wisdom to make sure that our energy, our efforts are well-directed and not wasted. So as you might remember, wisdom or panya in Pali is, in the, is the insight into how things are. Insight that things are impermanent, they're unreliable and unsatisfactory, and they're imperfect, impersonal, without a fixed sense of me, a solid, stable identity in here to whom everything is happening. So those are the three really key insights that all of this practice is aiming for. Wisdom is also the understanding that actions have consequences. We talked about this, I think, in relation to ethical conduct, that the underlying motivation of the heart and mind that we do things with, that motivation shapes our lives for better or for worse. So if our actions are rooted in the three core afflictive states of greed, of hatred, of delusion, then we're likely to bring affliction to ourselves, to others. The opposite is also true. If our actions are motivated by clarity, by kindness, by compassion, we're more likely to experience beneficial results. So wisdom and energy are intimately connected because wisdom gives us the understanding of why we need to, <coughs> why we need to practice. And energy gives us the motivation to actually do it. So when we see the impermanent and the unsatisfactory aspects of our lives more clearly, it inspires us to seek something that's more lasting and more fulfilling. And that inspiration fuels our energy and motivates us to put in the effort that's needed to cultivate the qualities that help us to live with more ease, more happiness, more peace, more freedom. So energy then is the effort that we put into our practice. It's determination, it's perseverance to continue on this path of awakening, even when it's difficult or challenging, maybe especially when it's difficult or challenging. So as Sharon Salzberg writes, when wisdom and energy are balanced, we have the insight to know what needs to be done and the energy to actually do it. And this balance is important because too much wisdom without energy, 
Too much wisdom without energy can lead to complacency, while too much energy without wisdom can lead to burnout and confusion. So there's a two-way relationship between wisdom and energy. And as you maybe remember in my last talk, wisdom in the Buddha's understanding is not a fixed static quality that we have or we don't. It's something that we can actively develop, strengthen, deepen. So last time I was here, I talked about how wisdom develops, as it develops, it moves from the head, from a more intellectual kind of knowledge, down into the heart, and then to the gut, to become fully embodied. So it's an active process of cultivation and development. So Joseph Goldstein says, wisdom is not something we acquire and then we have. Rather, it's something we need to continually nurture and ripen in our lives. And of course, it takes energy, it takes effort to do that. And I think for most of us, energy is not something we think about that much. Often we just take it as a given, take it for granted, until or unless we run out of it maybe due to illness or energy, uh, sorry, injury or aging. And then suddenly we realize, whoa, <laughs> I don't have any energy or my energy is compromised. So perhaps this is why the Buddha made energy one of these 10 parami. He's inviting us to really look, how are we using this energy? How can we bring wisdom to what we're doing with it so that our actions is in alignment with our deeper values, our aspirations, and how that energy is going to bring the best results for us. Because after all, energy is a limited commodity. So let's look a bit more closely about what energy is as a parami. So the Pali word is virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A. And it's usually translated into English as energy, effort, persistence, perseverance, vigor, exertion, diligence. And the original Pali word, it also has connotations of the warrior archetype. So the vir, V-I-R, at the beginning of virya, means male. And the English word virile actually comes from the same root. And those of you who do yoga, you might know the uh, warrior pose, Virabhadrasana. Again, it's the same vir, warrior energy. So virya as a parami is sometimes translated as heroic effort. So you might get a sense that there's a whole spectrum of intensity here. From just the ordinary everyday energy that it takes to drink a cup of tea, for example, to do anything in our lives, right through to the more heroic level of effort that is sometimes needed to face into life's challenges. So at times it does take this more heroic level of energy so that we can not only survive those challenges, but transform what we might think of as obstacles into vehicles, vehicles that help us continue on this path to freedom. So before we go too much further, just to acknowledge the importance of keeping balance in mind when we're approaching this parami in particular, because I think for some people, just hearing words like 
efforts, heroic effort, vigor, exertion, etc., can activate some of our default patterns, our default conditioning. So maybe for some of you here, when you hear about virya effort, what might come up is a sort of self-punishing tendency, a striving tendency. And you're telling yourself, "Mm, yeah, I really should be meditating three times a day, seven days a week, and I really should be going on a lot more retreats. For other people, talking about energy and effort can bring up resistance or apathy. It's just too hard, too much. I don't have the time. This is really not for me. I, I just can't be bothered. For other people, it can bring up guilt. Uh, I'm not trying hard enough. She's giving this talk because of me. I should be doing more. I'm not making enough progress. (laughs) Sounds like maybe some of you recognize that one. So this is where the exploration of energy really needs to be supported by wisdom. Because wisdom helps us to recognize those unconscious or semi-conscious patterns. And wisdom helps us not to believe those seductive messages that they might be trying to tell us. So for this reason, one of our teachers, Gil Fronsdell, he says we need to bring wisdom to the parami in in the form of investigation. And he says we can ask ourselves, what are all the images and the self-images and the self-representations and the ideas we have about who we are when we're making effort? I thought it might be worth just taking a moment this far into the talk as you're hearing about effort. What are the images, the self-images, the self-representations, the ideas we have about who we are when we're making effort? So just take a moment to reflect on that. Does this parami of effort bring up for you? And I'll leave some time after the talk to hear any responses that might come up. But for now, I'd just like you to take in whatever popped into your mind as useful information. And as best you can, see if you can put that whatever might have Conditioning may have come up. See if you can put it aside and just orient to having an open heart and mind as we continue to explore Viria. And one aspect of it that I'd like to highlight is that it's changing all the time. And at different stages in our practice development, more or different levels of effort are required. So at first, there's what I call launching effort. And launching effort to get the practice going, it can take quite a bit of energy. Because I think for most of us, with our mainstream conditioning, the societal values that we've grown up with, as well as our individual personality habits, all of those go against many of the ways of being in the world that the Buddha's inviting us into. And so it can feel like it takes a huge amount of effort at times And when I was reflecting on this, I thought metaphorically it can feel a little bit like trying to steer an enormous cruise ship in a different direction. (laughs) 
So just the weight and the momentum of that ship, it just wants to keep going on its familiar route. And we need to apply a lot of effort to just steer it a little half a degree in a different direction. And that can take a surprising amount of effort. But as the ship does start to turn, it finds that new route and as it progresses, that same momentum actually takes less effort. And at some point, not fully cruise, this isn't a perfect metaphor, but we can just kind of let the momentum keep going. And at this point, we need a lot less effort. The effort here is very refined. It now becomes about actually getting out of the way and letting the momentum of the Dharma do its work through us rather than having to micromanage the whole process. So hopefully you're getting a sense that there's a natural unfolding, a natural development, a natural momentum that comes from setting up the right conditions. And according to the discourses, the suttas, the factor that starts that whole progression is our commitment to non-harming So non-harming, also known as sila, ethical conduct, which you may recognize is yet another of the parami. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago. So again, we see how all of these parami interweave and strengthen each other. So just to get a sense of how sila, non-harming, supports the parami, I'd like to share a couple of passages from Ajahn Suchito's book, that is called Parami, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. So I know some of you here went to Ajahn Suchito's retreat over Easter, and some of you may be coming along on Saturday morning to Vimuti for a half day of practice with him. So we're very fortunate that he happens to be in New Zealand at the moment. So what I appreciate about his book is how he draws these connections between different parami, and he translates virya as applied energy, applied energy, which maybe sounds a little less daunting than heroic energy. And he describes how the first place we need to apply our energy is in relation to our ethical standards, our sila. So non-harming through actions of body, of speech, of mind. And as you know, this non-harming is traditionally expressed through the five training precepts. So these are trainings, not commandments, but they're the training to refrain from not killing living beings, to refrain from taking what's not freely offered, to refrain from using our sexual energy in ways that are harmful, to refrain from speaking untruthfully and harshly, and to refrain from misusing intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So when we bring wisdom to our behavior in the world, we understand the benefit of applying our energy in a wise way because it creates less harm for ourselves, less harm for others. And this is what Ajahn Suchito calls setting wise boundaries. He says, we must consider what is unskillful, what leads to harmful results and should be left aside. We must also consider what is skillful, what channels our energy towards that which is supportive and nourishing. 
the most obvious area we should consider is our ethical standards. Otherwise, we're going to have to deal with the psychological and social mess, the furtiveness and the guilt that comes from not making our ethical boundaries clear. So we apply wisdom to our ethical conduct, how we behave in the world, for our own benefit as much as anyone else's. With everything we do, we can consider, is what I'm doing now for my welfare, for the welfare of others, and does it lead out of stress and towards peace? Pretty simple. And not so easy. So I don't know about for any of you, but there have been a few times when this little voice, sometimes even a loud voice, has said, you know, I don't think that's such a great idea. But some other voice in my head just ignored it and went ahead and did that thing anyway. And pretty much always, there were pretty unfortunate results. Anyone else have an experience like that? (laughs) Never. That's what I thought, just me. Yeah. Maybe one or two of you have had something similar. And I think the voice of wisdom would get ignored back then because the old habits were just too entrenched. And the energy, the virya, wasn't strong enough at that time to override them, to steer in a different direction. So there is a painful phase of this practice where we're starting to see more clearly where we're going off course, but we haven't yet got enough energy to not keep falling back into those default psychological patterns. And so Ajahn Suchito says, boundaries around actions are necessary, and it's up to you to establish them. You can't just be passive. Some things have to be deliberately left outside. No, this is doing me no good. Or, that's not my concern right now. I don't need to do that. There's a definite no to that boundary. Make it firm, give it some energy, and it will look after you. On the other hand, there also has to be a yes. For example, yes, I am going to fully be with this. I have made a commitment. I'm going to see this through. Then establish that with care. Give it some energy. And even if you fail from time to time, still come back to those boundaries Look into how they caved in or where they were too tight and learn a few things. (coughs) So again, we see these three parami of ethical conduct, of wisdom and of energy really working together to strengthen and reinforce each other. We use wisdom to investigate our lives, to see what we're doing, whether it's skillful or unskillful. And then we use energy, applied energy, to establish those boundaries that help us to not do what's unhelpful and to support what's helpful. And if at times, or I should say when, at times we do end up breaking those boundaries, we use wisdom again to see how can we do it differently next time. So hopefully you're recognizing there's a direct relationship between energy and wisdom. And again, some of you might have experienced in your lives or perhaps on retreat, those moments when we do have some kind of insight. It's like the metaphorical light bulb goes off and it's like, ah. Mm -hmm. And if you have that, often there's a boost of energy, right? It's like, ah, right. And, you know, even as I say that, I'm sitting up a little taller. 
So these aha moments, maybe they happen on retreat or in daily life, where we suddenly recognize something with new understanding. And it can feel quite exciting and invigorating. And sometimes this is because some kind of blocked energy, stuck energy that we hadn't even realized was stuck or blocked, has suddenly released. And the energy that gets freed up from that becomes available to us in a whole new way. So wisdom and energy come together to provide inspiration in the overall development of our practice. And as we live more in alignment with our deepest aspirations, more energy is freed up to deepen wisdom, to deepen compassion. And this chain reaction develops a positive upward spiral that has its own momentum. And over time, less and less effort is needed to keep maintaining that progress. However, as I think again, you all know, we will recognize the value of feeling inspired. Inspiration, like any other quality, comes and goes, waxes and wanes. And I'm guessing all of you here at times, over the course of your practice, have gone through phases of maybe feeling dull or uninspired or unmotivated, Maybe some of you are feeling like that now. But if we understand how wisdom comes from energy, so inspiration comes from wisdom plus energy, when inspiration is low, if we investigate that wisdom or energy are depleted, then we can take the necessary steps to strengthen them. Now, whereas wisdom can be endlessly cultivated and deepened, Energy is a more limited resource. It's limited by the fact that we have organic human bodies. We are, in fact, mammals. We're animals. We are not machines. We're not cyborgs. And because our energy is limited, it's even more important that we want to apply it well, apply it where it's going to have the best effect. So part of this exploration of energy is to recognize where and how our energy might be leaking out or getting frittered away or used up in not-so-helpful pursuits. And I think one of the challenges for us in this day and age is all the societal pressure and the attitudes that we're all impacted by. So the increasingly fast and frenetic pace of life, the expectations of constant productivity, the hyper-busyness and the complexity that many of us are having to navigate, along with the resultant stress and anxiety and depression that just so many people are suffering from these days. So individually and collectively, we tend to use the resource of our own energy in the same way that we relate to other resources through over-exploiting them until we're depleted and exhausted and on the verge of burnout. Then perhaps if we're lucky, we have the opportunity to go on retreat as a kind of a temporary detox from all of that pressure. But more and more these days, I've been noticing how those same pressures are encroaching on retreat life too. So these days, many people want to have their cake and eat it too. (laughs) So they want to be on retreat, but yeah, they just want to keep their phone with them so they can continue running their business while they're away. 
or they want to arrive late or leave early because it suits their schedule better. Or they just want to pop out in the middle of the retreat because there's a theatre performance they want to go to, (laughs) or a choir rehearsal, or a soccer game, or an important work meeting. There's always something that pulls us, pulls our attention and undermines our effort. And that's partly why I appreciate Ajahn Suchito's reminder about having strong boundaries, making sure that all of our energy is channeled in the same direction, not leaking out in ways that perhaps prevent us from getting the best results from our retreat time. And I think I may have shared this with you before, but even retreat centers themselves are not immune from this pressure. So what used to be a standard retreat, nine or ten days, is becoming, in some countries, a seven-day retreat. And a seven-day retreat is becoming a five-day retreat. And the five-day retreat is becoming a three-day retreat. And all of this is condensing and shortening at a time when people actually need more time, not less, to detox from the hyper-busyness. Now, of course, it's tempting to try and take shortcuts. But as we know from every other aspect of our lives, the effort or energy that we put in is reflected in the results we get out. So if we do something in a half-hearted way, we don't get nearly the same benefit as when we give ourselves to it fully. And it's a little bit of a catch-22, but to the extent that we hold back, to that same extent, our efforts are compromised. And then because we don't get the full benefits, we don't apply our full energy and effort. And as a result, it doesn't develop the momentum. And we don't taste the benefits that happen naturally when we do, in a way, surrender to the process of the Dharma. And I think what often gets in the way of this surrender is our primal need to be in control. And once again, this is where we need the wisdom parami. The wisdom parami helps to soften that clinging to a sense of me at the center of it all that is so desperately trying to drive the whole project. So the more clearly we understand the truth of anatta, of not-self, the easier it is to see through the clinging to I, to me, to my, to mine, and the better able we are to surrender to the process, to trust that the Dharma is unfolding almost in spite of us. So as these two parami of wisdom and energy work together and strengthen each other, we can start to relax that tight grip of needing to be in control. We understand more clearly that the practice is developing not in a linear way, but organically in cycles according to causes and conditions. And that trying to drive this process through force of will is usually counterproductive. And unfortunately, this is just something we seem to need to learn the hard way. Most of us seem to need to push and force and strive and exhaust ourselves until eventually we realize we need a different approach. Eventually, enough wisdom develops, and the parami of energy develops its own momentum. And as they develop, it becomes almost effortless as we get closer and closer 
by experiencing that freedom of heart and mind. So I think that's enough for now. I just close. I hope that our efforts to develop this parami of energy, they might help us all to know that freedom for ourselves. Okay, so thank you for making the effort to listen. I wanted to make sure there was time for any questions or reflections. And particularly just to reflect on a couple of those questions I brought in. Where and how does our energy tend to leak out or get frittered away? And then Gil's question, what are the images and the self-images, the ideas we have about who we are when we're making effort? Does anybody have anything they'd like to share on that or any other comments or reflections? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.